I'm going to be talking about some research uh, that I undertook with a colleague of mine at Cardiff called Phil Brown, uh, which is a comparison between um, French and British uh, elite graduates. And I'm sort of, I'm very pleased there's uh, so many people who know a lot about France in the, in the audience, but also a little bit nervous, uh, because for those of us in the UK, the French higher education system is extraordinarily complicated. <laughs> And I hope that I have the details right, but please feel free to correct me um, if I say anything wrong. Um, the structure of the presentation, whoops, if I can get this right, wrong one. Let's try. Oh, there we are. I'm going to very briefly talk about the sociological context uh, for undertaking the research, describe the research itself, which is a very small scale exploratory study. As I say, it was a comparative project, so comparing uh, students in, in England and France. Um, I'm going to be mostly concentrating on the French students, because that's what I've been told to do. Uh, but it's also interesting every now and then to draw points of comparison, so I, I will pull those, pull those out. Um, I'm particularly looking at, at their career aspirations and their sense of social obligations. And I suppose the extent to which they reflect the, uh, the, t the issue that's addressed in the title of the seminar um, about uh, whether the Republican ideals of France are under threat from globalisation. Uh, then, after we've looked at the data, I'm going to look at some of the things that might explain why our French graduates are as they are and our uh, British graduates are as they are uh, before looking at the implications. In terms of the sociological context, there's really general consensus that something's happening um, at the top end of the labour market, and lots of different names have been given to it. So, you know, Wright talks about transnational professionals, um, uh, Doyle and Nathan about the service class, uh, the French academic Favel talks about Eurostars. So there's many different names for this phenomenon, but there's general consensus that we've got a quite globalised elite at the top. We've always known there's been a kind of migrant global labour market at the bottom of migrant workers, but also a, um, a, a particularly new kind of uh, global elite. And the appearance of this elite has caused some commentators to worry about the social consequences of it. And I'm just going to mentioned two quotes. I put these at quite length because they, they kind of inform the research uh, questions. Uh, Diane Freeland talks about the, the worries of what she calls a super elite. They're highly educated, jet-setting meritocrats. They feel they're deserving winners um, in this kind of global war from talent. Um, many of them, she argues, have an ambivalent attitude towards those of us who don't succeed so spectacularly. Um, and that they're becoming a trans-global community of peers who have more in common with one another than with their countrymen back home. They're a nation unto themselves, she argues. Robert Reich, in his kind of seminal book on the uh, work of the nations, talked about um, transnational professionals who'd never developed the habits and attitudes of social responsibility. So they don't acknowledge the kind of obligations that citizenship in a polity normally implies. So that's the kind of sociological background. So we use that to kind of inform a very small-scale comparative research project. We designed it then to scale up, but we haven't, we haven't done that yet. 
well, we tried to, we didn't, weren't successful for funding, but we will try again, um, where we interviewed 40 students from Sciences Po and in Paris, uh, taking the Masters in Public Administration, and those from Oxford University taking what I used to think was PE, but I know now it's not uh, physical education, it's philosophy, politics, I've always got the wrong way around, and economics, um, and history. Now, it's really, really difficult to do international comparisons between France and England because the structure of the higher education systems is so different. And I know there's differences. For instance, these are, uh, this is their first degree at Oxford, whereas at Sciences Po, it's their master's degree. But in some way, this reflects the different kind of structure. So that in the UK, it's the, your first degree that is your most significant in opening doors, whereas that's not necessarily the case in France. But again, our French colleagues might want to correct me on that. Um, so it's very difficult to get a perfect comparison. But we tried, to, but it, in other ways, they are quite matched. So both Sciences Po and Oxford University are highly selective. They would both claim to be global universities. And these particular courses have a reputation um, in each context for feeding into really the upper echelons of public service. So I think I'm right in terms of Sciences Po that only two of the last seven presidents of the Fifth Republic didn't go to Sciences Po. And similarly, if you look at the current UK cabinet, I think it's seven or eight members did PPE at Oxford. So they, they have a reputation for feeding into very elite positions um, in the public sector. So, okay, did it, that one? Yeah. So these are the research questions which, that we kind of interrogated the data um, from these 40 interviews. Um, do these two cohorts, do they have more in common with each other than with their country back, men back home? That's Freedom's claim. Do they see themselves as deserving winners? Have they really abandoned or don't acknowledge any of the obligations of citizenship uh, that a polity normally implies? So those are the kind of empirical questions. And if I were answering them very briefly, if you had to do this presentation in five minutes, I'd say uh, no, yes, yes. But we'll look in more detail at that. <laughs> and then we're going to look at how those differences, how we can explain those differences in terms of the structure of the relationship between the state, uh, the education system, and particularly higher education and civil society. When we talk about, I'll just... This is just a kind of bit of theory, because I always worry I don't put enough theory in my presentations. Uh, when we were thinking about their careers, we drew quite heavily on the work of, of Nicholas Rose um, about trying to understand that the nature of work has changed. It's not just something you do. It's not a task. It's actually the way in which increasingly young people kind of become so that they fulfil themselves and their identity is very much dependent on uh, not just on work, on themselves as having careers and uh, they often seem to have projects of the self. Now clearly both our Oxford and Parisian graduates do uh, construct their careers very much as projects of self-realisation, but the uh, selves they're seeking to realise are very different. This is the only slide I'm going to do on Oxford uh, before we look at the French students. Our Oxford uh, graduates 
They all talked about the importance of their work as being something that they would find fulfilling, about it being satisfaction. It had to be a challenge. It was often very vague what it would be. Um, they were nearly all already had placements in various kinds of international uh, consultancy firms or accountancy firms, uh, multinational corporations. But they didn't talk about the, the, the work itself that they were doing, but about the fact that it would present them with a challenge and stretch them. Um, they also talked about the fact that uh, they would move from job to job. As one thing got boring, they'd find another challenge. Uh, they always talked about challenge. There were the overwhelming majority of them, I would say sort of 18 out of the 20 had plans or already had um, occupations that would take them abroad all around the world. Um, again, with their multinational companies. There was, as we shall see, in stark contrast to, contrast to our French uh, graduates, um, there was a complete absence um, of discussion about uh, working in the public sector um, or about working for the country. And again, we might come back to talk about why that absence was there. Now, our French graduates have a very different way of conceptualising their future. After leaving Sciences Po, many were going to uh, enrol uh, for the, into the ENA um, and hoped to develop a career um, serving the state and in public service. The, the idea of France figured very strongly in their narratives. Uh, their careers were constructed far more in a far more linear fashion and their relationship with the um, global labour market was very different and we'll have a look at each of these points. I find these quotes fascinating because they're just so very different from what our British graduates say. So this is our Sciences Po students talking. I feel it is in my soul to work for the public service. Uh, working for the state or for the community interests me. I'm really interested in prefectorial administration. I'm really keen on that. It's one of my dreams. The administration, I have a high regard, but I'm inspired to go there. Generally very anti the private sector, uh, which was seen to be not in the public interest. Uh, very strong divide uh, between uh, public sector and the administration good, and the private sector, bad. Um, the administration is more rewarding. It's my calling. So almost a sort of vocational conviction about, about uh, working for the French administration. And it was about serving France. I mean, it's just inconceivable, I think, that our Oxford graduates would talk in these terms. So public service is royal, national. It's the most French and national path. This is, I think, probably my favourite quote of all of them. Without being protectionist or nationalistic, defending the interests of France is what interests me. That's not at all nationalistic, so. They're much more linear. They had a very much clearer sense of what they would be doing at particular stages in their lives. So here's our, one of our correspondents talking about being the happiest person in the world if they could become a prefect at 50. Um, 
some of them talked about change, but not with, within a much longer time frame than, than, in the, than amongst our Oxford graduates. So, you know, this one thought about change in the longer term, but they wouldn't be doing the same for 42 or 43 years, where it was usually about two to three years our Oxford graduates were thinking of moving on. And again, there's a kind of sense of a stage progression and linearity within their careers. So, and as I say, that the, uh, the strong sentiment of loyalty to France was, was very evident. Um, that, again, we'll go back to thinking about having an obligation to work for France. Quite dismissive of expatriates, people who leave France simply for the money. They have the worst insult of the world, probably. They have a nouveau riche way of doing things. They are show-off, they are flamboyant, and this is not my style at all. This doesn't apply to any French people working here, by the way. I'm sure there's no nouveau riche here. <laughs> okay. They might work abroad, um, but... Oh, you know, the more I grow up, the more I feel the connection with France, intersects with my idea of not working abroad. Well, I could work abroad for a French firm. And they'd nearly all had had placements, um, either with French embassies or, or very like EDF or very strongly French uh, uh, nationalised countries, uh, companies. And there's a kind of economic patriotism about exporting the French way of doing it and which they've been quite successful because the seven bridges, which I have to go over to get to Wales, are both owned by France. Um, our water, I think, is owned by France. Our electricity soon will be. So, okay. So, if we go back to the question about are our global elite graduates a nation unto themselves, and I think the answer is no. Um, they clearly have uh, international aspirations, but they're very different between our French and our British students, so that there's still strong national differences in terms of their expressed aspirations. So that's the kind of the first research question answered. The next one that we wanted to answer, which relates to the idea of social obligation, um, is about whether they saw themselves as kind of deserving of, their, of the kind of elite opportunities uh, that their education was open up. And, this, and commonly across all of the graduates, they all felt generally that they had got where they had through hard work and ability. The classic definition of meritocracy. So Virginie was talking about hard work um, and also talent. She doesn't want to say she's talented, it's for other people to say, but she is good at science. Um, so about, the, and this was common across both countries. Hard work and ability explained how they got where they were. But not entirely. They also acknowledged, and this was common about both, both cohorts, that, that if they hadn't competed on a completely level playing field, that they had benefited from privileges. So Nicolas talks about his parents and his grandparents. Uh, Alain talks about the importance of private investment in tutoring that most of the candidates who go to Sciences Po benefit from. Aurélie talks about uh, the importance of geography in terms of destinations in France and the significance of if you come from Paris, what it opens up, rather than if you come um, from far poorer regions. 
So, although they think learned, the system is meritocratic, they would also acknowledge that they, were, they benefited from privileges. They also, and again, this is across both cohorts, uh, they emphasised luck, um, the importance of luck. They were lucky. Um, and the discourse of luck is very interesting because on the one hand, it, it kind of, you can see it as an expression, a kind of humbling thing that, you know, they're just lucky. Um, so that it kind of emphasises the randomness of their opportunities. But you could also argue that it denies any systematic or structural inequalities. They haven't, they haven't benefited from systematic structural inequalities. Um, so it kind of does a lot of the word luck is very interesting in terms of explaining inequalities. Because at the one hand, it acknowledges the randomness, but at the other hand, it denies the fact that there might be structured inequalities. The previous slide referred to private schools. So. Yes. But they might be lucky to have. Like yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, or lucky to have the parents I did. Yes, I mean, it's, so it's, but, but it is an acknowledgement of unfairness, but of a particular kind of unfairness. I mean, so, okay. So both cohorts, I've just pulled out the Sciences Po ones, both cohorts thought the system was, they, they deserved to be where they were, but they had been privileged and lucky. And because of that, you might argue, they did have a strong sense of social obligation, of giving back to those who are less fortunate, less lucky, less privileged. Um, and that's, that was true, again, of both of them. So, again, if we go back to the research question that Reich proposed, they do acknowledge it, um, social obligations of giving something back. But they do so in very different ways. Now, our British students talked about volunteering a lot. Uh, the majority of them had either been volunteering while at school or in their gap years, or while they were at universities. Now, in the UK, almost every university now has a huge branch of people working in volunteering, getting students to volunteer, globally and in the local community. It's kind of, it's widespread in a way I don't think it exists at all in France. Um, that kind of emphasis on volunteering. They talked a lot about becoming social entrepreneurs. And again, the language is quite interesting because social entrepreneurship is a kind of a privatised... The language of social entrepreneurship is different from the language of public sector loyalty. But some of them were going to uh, under, would set up social entrepreneur companies um, alongside their work. And some of them who were working for particular kinds of investment banks emphasised the fact that their, the bank they were working for was socially responsible, so that they were kind of attuned to... And if you... Uh, the way in which banks and organisations now display various forms of um, volunteering is it's, it's kind of amazing. I was just... This is a bit of an aside. I stayed with my aunt last night and she had a packet of uh, special K on the table. On the back of recipe, on the back of um, cereal packets, it used to have things like recipes and stuff like that. And now it's got a, had a big advert about Kellogg's chiming for change and about helping, you know, deprived communities. And you had to take a selfie and so that you were 
show you a supporting Kellogg's. You know, it's very interesting the way in which charities are mainstreamed into businesses and schools and universities in the UK in a way that I think is, again, but our French colleagues might say differently, is, is not at all the case in France. So, now our French students, predictably, were going to give something back, not through volunteering on the side of their work or in setting up or social entrepreneurships. Um, they're going to do it um, through their administration and their sense of obligation is very much to the system. So they, they feel about giving back to the state. I'm completely aware of the opportunity that I've had which was offered to me by the state and I feel indebted to it. I want to give back to the state what I could receive. Again, inconceivable I think that our Oxford students would say that. So, this is they're giving back, they're discharging their so social obligations through public service. Um, so they see, and again, I think in a way that our, I suspect our civil servants don't see their work for the government as being about making a difference to someone, um, about helping someone somewhere. Okay, oh, just put a few numbers. The difference is just, obviously it's a very small sample that we've interviewed, but I just say the differences in terms of engagement and volunteering are borne out by um, survey data. This is, uh, or is it Shetland? European uh, social survey data um, and we filtered out just the young people and if you look at it you can see that our British young people, this is not just elites, this is all British young people, are significantly more likely to be volunteering than our French graduates. Um, and there's other research at directorship level which shows that, that volunteering is a big thing in Great Britain but not so significant in France. So that, for instance, nearly three quarters of young French youngsters have never uh, volunteered, whereas that's the case for fewer than half of British uh, young people. <coughs> okay, so this is kind of summarising the empirical evidence. Both British and French graduates talked about the careers in terms of personal fulfilment, but, but the nature of that fulfilment was very different. So one was going to find fulfilment through personal challenge, portfolio careers, international experiences. Um, the other, the French one, was going to find through fulfilment through uh, working for the public administration. Both sets felt they were deserving winners, but they also had a sense that uh, of their own privilege and fortune, and both had sets of social responsibility but the means through which they sought to discharge this obligation was very different. As we've seen, the Oxford graduates were through third sector engagement, social entrepreneurship, and the Paris graduates were through the state and the administration. So, how can we account for these differences? 
Well, something that we need to consider is that there are certain discourses that are acceptable or unacceptable amongst students. So that, for instance, in the UK, well, particularly probably in England, rather than Wales or Scotland, it's just not acceptable to talk about really your loyalty to your nation state. It would be seen, I think, as xenophobic or that, that actually displays of patriotism would be frowned upon. There was one young man who we interviewed who was actually joining the Royal Navy, but he never articulated his choice in terms of serving the country. So it might be that what we're seeing is not so much um, real, genuinely heartfelt differences, but what's it, what is it okay for people to say? That's one possible which we might consider is, is an explanation. And remember, our, our, most of our um, French graduates were in training to, to take, uh, to go into the administration. So you might want to argue they've been groomed into what's an acceptable thing to think about the nobility of the state and the administration. So I think we should just bear in mind that it might be about discourse. But on the other hand, even if it is about discourse, that just pushes the explanation further back, because you'd want to know why is that discourse acceptable or unacceptable. And clearly, Education is implicated in these differences very crucially, both in terms of the history of the relationship between education and the state, in the way that obligations are created, and the way in which it both legitimates and highlights inequalities. And I'm just going to briefly look at all each of these in turn. So, those of you that are familiar with Andy Green's work will know that um, he's done a very powerful analysis comparing the history of uh, well, the USA, Prussia, France and England. Uh, but particularly for our purpose, if we compare England and France, um, we can see that the states always had very, very minimal involvement um, in setting up a system of education. Up until the end of the 19th century, it really was a voluntary sector by church and small providers. So the third sector, as we call it now, um, has been the main provider of education through most of the history of English education. Um, it only got a national curriculum in 1988, so very different in terms of France. Um, citizenship education, again, relatively recent now. I don't know whether people agree with it, but Starkey and Osler argue uh, that French has a more it's certainly more state, much longer history of uh, state um, in control of education, uh, but also in citizenship education there are significant differences. So that in France uh, there's the celebration of republican values, human rights, um, whereas it's very recent in England and then it tends to emphasise things like engagement in civil society volunteering, charitable work. We've got, um, uh, in Wales, we've got something called the Welsh Baccalaureate, and that has a compulsory volunteering component, which is kind of a bit oxymoronic. But, uh... <laughs> okay, now we know also, higher education, there's very different histories between the two uh, countries in the establishment of universities and particularly elite institutions, so our elite institutions in the UK, again, set up what we call the voluntary sector, originally church foundations, 
whereas the Grand École is very much part of the state machinery. Um, and again, I hope if I'm wrong, our French colleagues will correct us. Also, very interestingly, even at a more superficial level, more recent level, it's possible that contrasting funding regimes generate different kinds of loyalties. So that in France, the students at Sciences Po, many of them are actually salaried, which is very different from students here who, they don't fund themselves entirely, but there's significant private investment in their own education. So that sense of obligation to the state is going to be a little bit different. As Stephanie says, and pay for studying, and she sees it not as a salary, but a loan. So even the f forms of funding might generate different kinds of loyalty um, and senses of obligation. Finally, well not finally, not done yet, <laughs> almost finally, um, in addition to different relationships between the state and uh, the education system, they have different, uh, the configuration of the third sector is very different in each country. So in the UK, uh, which is largely seen by specialists in civil society, have a, to have a liberal third sector, uh, whereas France has a corporatist and statist approach, which inhibits voluntary sector um, engagement. In Britain, some people argue uh, that humanitarianism um, is a particularly national project. As I say, we certainly see the mainstreaming of charitable works in schools, in universities, and in business. And we see the huge growth in volunteering. It's also possible that the changes, that are different affinities of groups of students reflect changes in where the elite occupations are to be found. We know that in the UK, the state has been so hollowed out by various neoliberal Forms, that actually the elite destinations are not in the state anymore. They're in the multinational co corporations. So it could be a kind of pull factor as much as, as kind of developed socialization. Um, it's very interesting if you were to look at um, career aspirations, probably in the first half of the 20th century in, from elite graduates, a significant proportion would have wanted to go into the clergy. <coughs> Because at that point, the clergy was arguably an elite. Now, the clergy is not really an elite anymore, and graduates don't want to go there anymore. So in a way, their aspirations reflect where the elite jobs are. So perhaps the hollowing out of the UK state has made elite public sector administrative roles no longer a desirable aspiration. Whereas in France, um, the public, the ideal and Republican ideals um, endures, whether it's as strong as it's always been, I don't know, because I'm not a historian, but it's certainly stronger than it is in the UK. Um, so that, that's much more strongly embedded in the idea that, not so much that it's, it's worthwhile, but the government um, gives you a position of power and elite status. Now, what you, whether you... Whether you prefer the French or the British system probably depends on what you think about the virtues or vices of the state or the civil society. And arguably they both have dark sides. So um, in the UK, we often look at France as being much better than us because it's got, it still believes in public sector, it still has all these virtues that we've lost. Uh, 
But there's all, but there is, as we know, a dark side of statism. We know that not all of our graduates are perhaps as selfless as their aspirations will make them seem. We know that half of them will very quickly leave the public sector and go to the private sector. Is it pantoufleurs? Pantoufleurs. Pantoufleurs. So, which means slipper wearers, doesn't it? So that there's a huge movement out of the, despite their their strong endorsement for their calling and their vocation, uh, it won't be very long before they enter the private sector. Um, but we also know there's a dark side of a liberal humanitarianism as we have in the UK, and, uh, and this is one of my favourite quotes that's attributed to Attlee about uh, that charity's a cold, grey and loveless thing. If a rich man wants to help the poor, he should pay his taxes gladly, not dole out money at a whim. So they're kind of... They both have dark sides, so I'm not, I don't want to celebrate the French or the, or the British way. And actually, in the end, it may not make very much difference. So what I want to do is finish just by looking at common features across both graduates, despite their very different allegiances. We ask them really about tackling inequalities in society, and given they're going to be elite earners and high-wage earners, how they deal with higher levels of taxation at the top or redistribution. And they were universally hostile to the idea. So that here we have our Oxford students, which you might expect, uh, because they, ha they come with a, a more individualistic thing, uh, saying, yes, you know, it's fine, I'm comfortable that people earn more. That's how economics works. Maybe it's a bit high. I like this one, Emily says, given the hours they put in, like an investment banker, if you did an hourly wage, a lot of them would be earning minimum wage. Yeah. So, but it wasn't just, it wasn't just our Oxford students. Despite their commitment to putting something back in the state, our French students were no keener on higher levels of taxation. Sadly, you know, it might be nice, but it would limit the competition. Competi I can't say it, competitivity of France. And it's very good because it's not that it would limit his earning capacity, but it would stop French competition. <laughs> and again, Giselle. She might, it might be unjust, but what's really unjust is a footballer that earns 250 times more. Uh, so it's kind of interesting, but despite their very different allegiances, both equally hostile um, <coughs> to, uh, to any significant redistribution of resources through taxation. And I'm going to stop there. So. Thank you very much indeed, Sally. We've got uh, time for some questions now.